Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your Keepers of Mysteries, Jen Brinkman, David Haney, Bob Brinkman, Enter the Sanctum Socorum and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We'll be reviewing various works from the famed Appendix N, as termed by the revered Gary Gygax, and helping you prepare to serve them at your DCC RPG table. I'm Bob Brinkman, and with me are Jen Brinkman. Hello! And David Beatty. Greetings, pod people. Our Appendix N selection for this show is The Last Castle by Jack Vance. Jen, you chose this one. You get to introduce it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm never going to hear the end of it. I know this. All right. The Last Castle is one of the shorter books by Jack Vance, which is the reason I chose it, and David still won't forgive me. (laughs) For our synopsis, most humans on Earth live in a small number of elaborate, high-tech castles as idle aristocrats primarily concerned with aesthetics, pastimes, and questions of honor and etiquette. Only a small minority of humans live free lives outside of the castles and are considered barbaric by the inhabitants of these castles. Various alien races serve the latter. One day, one of those slave races, the mechs, revolt and start besieging the castles. One by one, the castles fall and their residents are killed until only Castle Hagedorn is left. Most of the decadent castle denizens choose to ignore the danger. One of them, Xanton, decides to fight the mechs and searches for allies inside as well as outside the castle. And I particularly like the small blurb on the inside cover here um, about how Vance describes strong personalities of a super-cultured culture, their irascible birds and gauze insect girl fanes, all threatened by an invasion force of unicognitive mechs and crumbling ideology. Ooh. Yeah... Now, now, granted, I think that if this book was stripped down to less flowery language, it'd be about 15 pages as opposed to <laughs> 80. I'm verbose, but Jack Vance really, really yeah. lays on the, the thick prose. There were a lot of what I call pretty words. Yeah, where you're sitting there looking them up as you hit them? Yes. Yeah, yes. I'm there with you. I apologize. <laughs> but he paints some really cool imagery, and this really stands in stark contrast to shadow people in that he describes things. Now, the last book we read, it was there is the RoboFuzz, and there's no description whatsoever. Whereas here, when he starts talking about the mechs and the antenna coming off the back of their necks, there's a lot of descriptions to it, so it really does paint a very vivid picture. Right, down to the smells and the shade of blue. (laughs) And (laughs) uh, He also has a really complex naming convention chart. Yeah. yeah. That that made things a little hard to follow, but I think overall we got a full cultural study. 
Yeah, the names and the titling for the nobility, to me, The Last Castle is more of a setting than something that I would directly convert to an adventure. Yeah, I agree on that. It paints this world because it's mankind having returned to Earth and having brought these other servant classes with them. It really lends itself to a setting. What really struck me were the inhabitants, or I guess what they termed a quarter of the inhabitants of the castle, Janil, they died without deigning to heed the fact. When they were sitting there knowing they were going to die, and they just chose to ignore it and die reading their favorite book, or died while discussing wines. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or, or stroking their favorite fane, yes. It was kind of creepy to that extent, this society that has become so decadent and so aloof that they won't deign to acknowledge the fact they're going to be murdered. As a matter of fact, it's the main character, Xanton, when he's talking at the meeting and the mechs have revolted and he's like, well, I'm going to do this at the risk of being called hasty because acting in haste is this huge issue of honor. Everything has to be so well thought out and so ponderously slow. Well, and the main reason Castle Janil succumbed was they didn't bother restoring their energy cannon because the peasants didn't have the mental capacity to handle it. Yeah, if I was to retitle this, I would call it Snobs from Outer Space. <laughs> I love it. I, 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 I like that a little too much. <laughs> Since it's set on Earth, I think I would call it the real housewives of Vance. Because all they do is bicker. And yes. you know, the world is burning around them. It was bad enough when Nero did it, but when you've got an entire castle filled with little wannabe Neros, it's kind of strange. <laughs> And you've got the fanes, which are described as sylphs with pelts. And they're essentially these insect women with a 30-year lifespan that have beautiful fur pelts that they would even have pageants about. And then you have the wives of the aristocrats who would do things like poison the fanes so all their fur falls out. Yeah, it was interesting. I didn't think they had fur so much. I remember them being described as gossamer pelt that stretched down. I imagined them more like butterflies because they talked about how if you uh, decided to get intimate with one of the fanes, you essentially destroyed it because the rough use and then you were looked down upon, of course, because ah, you were using a fane. Interesting, okay. But there's so many interesting things really to stat. Right. There's the fanes. There's the birds. I love the birds. Which, based on the description, they've got six sets of wings because he gets into one of the lift chairs and he's got six birds and 36 sets of wings carrying him aloft. Jeez, yeah. They fly more gently with the cargo than they do with the nobility then. Yeah. Or the gentlemen, as they're described. That's pretty intentional, I think. Well, most of the races, the mechs and uh, the birds, weren't they? I think they were imported from other planets, right? Yeah, the fanes came from a, a moon. All of the other races were. Um, the peasants came from Spica 10. Hmm. So they all of the different races were from different worlds. This was like 3,000 years, I think. There was a war, I guess, that from what I'm reading, it ravaged the Earth. So I guess, the, as I like to call them, the snobs left the planet. <laughs> and uh, stayed away for 3,000 years, and then they decided to uh, come back. Right. And so they brought with them the mechs, the human cockroach things. 
which I thought were really cool. I like the way he described those. That was really that was a fun race to try and actually stat up for gameplay. They're one of the things on my list. I want to try and hit all four, all five, I guess, of the races. Because there's the mechs, the birds, the fanes, the peasants, and the power wagons are actually a race. The fact that their vehicles are alive, they're big blocks of muscle, yeah. is kind of neat. So I certainly thought about statting those. You could almost argue that the nobility, at least based on the actions of Xanton, are their own class. I mean, in combat, the stuff that he is doing is amazing. Yeah, you know, when you talked about making this, I guess, when you were bringing it through to DCC, you were talking about maybe using it as a, a setting, is that right? Oh, I think that it, it's very ripe for a setting. When I was thinking about, I think I was along the same lines with you, Bob, and I was kind of approaching it with maybe making the nobilities actually some of the forces to fight against. Maybe you would play some of the nomads, which are the actual humans that were left when the, the earth was raised. Oh, the... The expiationists? Yes. Which I also thought about doing as a class. And give yourselves cookies for saying that word right. <laughs> well, there's the nomads and there's the expiationists, and they're different. The The expiationists are the people that have left the castles or are also, because of the, you're only allowed to have one right. child, they're also the extra children, right. and the nomads are the people that stayed behind. And the expiationists are described as, like, deserters or almost gypsies. In, in some places, because they're the ones that travel to barter, and they're known for their dancing and their singing. Yeah, they're looked down on. I think just like anybody, you, you could even say today, you know, when, when people talk about renouncing their American citizenship, you, a lot of people at least raise an eyebrow at that, and it's the same sort of thing, but now you're saying... I live in this beautiful castle where I don't have to do anything, but I'm going to leave that behind. And the society inside the castle just cannot wrap their brains around that. Well, these are the same people that put the peasants and the fanes in the stables during the attack. Well, but they also mentioned that the peasants aren't even really capable of harmful actions. They mention how useless they would be in combat, but they're also the people that have changed the the biology of the mechs and the birds so that they live off of the syrup sacks and they you know they feed them that protein slurry syrup stuff they make and once again we end up with a story that revolves around the foodstuffs outer <laughs> 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 syrup well i love how at at the end the way xanton is victorious is they starved out the mechs they had all of the syrup depots and all of the mechs structures bombed from above courtesy of the birds, the birds. and you know they they said we've starved you out so now we're going to take you back to where you came from so that you can stop waging war on us which is pretty cool i like the way that uh... it's an interesting message yeah <laughs> But for those listening, the uh, the syrup sacks, uh, all of the slave races, if I'm not mistaken, well, at least the the birds and the mechs, they took them from their home planets where they might have ate something different or survived, thrived on something different and sewn these sacks to them, I guess, which uh, replaced things that they normally would eat. One of the things I thought was interesting, you, the, the birds and the mechs, did any of the other races, did they uh, feed from the syrup sacks as well, or was it just those two races? I think all the servant races did, based on what the nomads were saying when they were saying things like, if you want these things done, you should just you know go on the syrup yourself. You feed everyone else the syrup, but it's not good enough for you. Yeah, that was one of the, the lines I really liked a lot when the, the nomads said that, because 
it's uh, obviously good and nutrient for all the other races, but the noble class, for some reason or another, don't want to partake of it. With the races and and a couple possible classes, oh, yeah. and then there's the, the weaponry. Just the names of some of them were very evocative, like the steel sling whip that he was using and holding people at bay, and there's energy guns and energy cannons and pellet ejectors. It really sets up... Yeah. a setting more than an adventure where the the first book we were kind of following a, a hero's journey when we did the shadow people and it was you know he was going underground and he was doing this really in this book while we're kind of following what Xanton's doing I think he's secondary in the story to what's happening in the world with the mechs revolting and why they're revolting and all of these other races the last castle really feels like a setup for something bigger yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think there's plenty in the book to to take and, and mold to your own kind of setting, even if it's just for a one-shot or a two- or three-month campaign. There's plenty of material in there for you to trick out and stat and make a lot of fun for your players. Well, it, it stands to mention that the way the mechs were attacking the castle was by trying to bury them. Yeah. Taking the mounds of earth, especially for the, the first castle that they've the story opens with, they're just slowly being buried alive by machinery. And because they were thwarted uh, in Xanton's time, they ended up burrowing below yeah, and under. coming in f- from below the, the castle itself. Well, and that brings up the castles. The castle is such an evocative term, and I think that in the context of this story, castle really doesn't do it justice. I mean, you're talking about these structures that have walls around them that are two to three hundred feet high, that are made of black stone infused with a silvery blue steel, and the castles themselves are 30, 40 levels. It's so big, and castle, you know, when you read the title, you envision something a lot more, I think, medieval than than what you're presented with. That is true, and it it explains why at the end uh, Castle Hagedorn turns into a museum. Yeah, and I mean you've got it right. I mean it, you've got a castle, and then what what happens to it? Well, essentially the first castle is destroyed by <laughs> you know, the use of bulldozers, just bringing dirt in. They used the power wagons. Yeah, which just blew the nobles away that they were it was such a simple concept but yet it, it basically brought the whole castle down. Well, and this story kind of plays out everything in a fantasy setting castles really aren't the stronghold that they were in the real world. In a world where you can have a dragon fly overhead, a wall really doesn't do you a lot of good. And in this book, what happens? Well, we're being attacked. They're they're bringing the walls in. We get driven out. Well, I'm going to fly in via the birds, and we'll use the birds to drop things. Air superiority really comes into play. It's this low-tech feel. Perfect for your DCC campaign. Yes. I... I can't wait to stat out the the fanes myself. Because you know, it even says during the last 10 years of their short little lifespan, they spend their days wrapped in a gray gauze just doing menial tasks because they're no longer beautiful and they're no longer the objects of desire. You're not fit to dance for me anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they go from essentially you know, these dance competitions to being nannies. It's, it's kind or of maids. interesting and very yeah. sad. The fans are very tragic figures. They'd be even more tragic if they seem to have any thoughts, but we never are introduced to one Not as a character. Not so really. much. Yeah, they're always just sort of disgust. You don't keep yeah. those insect women, do you? Whereas the birds kind of remind me of the hyenas from The Lion King. 
Oh, yeah, I love the uh, the interactions between the birds, always bickering and arguing amongst themselves. Yeah, they're just obnoxious and snide and sarcastic, and they're everything that half, exactly. half the gamers at a table are to begin with. Maybe <laughs> I should step those up as a character <laughs> Well, class. then we wouldn't have to stretch very far, would we? <laughs> yeah. So we've got avian smartasses and uh-huh. fancy and eye candy being the fanes. Um, got the, uh... oh, I don't know. I don't know any polite way to phrase the peasants for today's society, especially in gamers. Um, <laughs> yeah. They were just, they were drones, little harmless worker bees. They're described as small andromorphous creatures that are just harmless. So, you know, they don't really have a gender. They just sort of kind of move through the world. They are, they're almost like big children, I think. And then we've got the mechs. Angry cockroaches. With the cockroach men. The telepathic cockroach men that share one universal yeah, mind. With, with these... Was it the uh, the antenna on the back of their syrup sacks? I like the bit in the book where they had mentioned that they usually have them tied into their radio systems. And the uh, the mechs were receiving the radio transmissions and typing them out. I thought that was kind of comical to envision. <laughs> The whole radio transmission thing in general, I think, is indicative of the age of the book, but it really plays out kind of interestingly that these things have radio transmitters and receivers in their brains, and they've got these spines that are antenna for radio transmissions, and so when one is captured, he just clips the antenna off so it can't talk to others, but they eventually start to grow back. It's a weird mix of biology and technology that sort of carries through with all the races. I mean, the power wagons are big, muscular pieces <laughs> of meat so with disturbing. Wheels, <laughs> and there's a start button on it. So speaking of the, the radios and the radio transmissions, what about some prop suggestions for the table for this one? That's kind of tough, just because everything is, is so high-tech. But I had a couple ideas. Because there's energy guns and pellet ejectors, I've seen a lot of people, There's an, as a matter of fact, there's an entire mod community that trick out Nerf guns <laughs> to make awesome. like steampunk oh, weapons and things like that. And you could easily, with a little bit of work, buy some of these Nerf guns or some of the super soakers and paint them all up and mod them so that party can actually handle one of the energy rifles or something like that. But everything else is so, I think, kind well, of I, I don't ordinary. know, you could, get, uh, you could make a little syrup sack. I you was could fill say, a water balloon with honey or something. Yes, and sew it onto your players. Now, they might re- <laughs> object initially. Yeah, because that's the thing. The syrup yeah. sack is a biological portion of them. It's not like they it's hand attached. the sack and they well, drink no, it, from it. Well, no, it could it's... be when you slay your foe, you roll it over, and, and this is what's attached <laughs> to the back. Yes. Hand your players like a balloon filled with maple idea. syrup. So we've got Adderkorn. Turn your players into syrup, drinking cockroaches. I I apologize to all of our friendly local game store owners. (laughs) (laughs) Why is my store so sticky? It's like the backseat of a New York taxi cab. Or or, that's how you get mechs. You know that, right? That's how you get mechs. But everything else is so mundane, really. I mean, they use radios. The musical instruments are pretty much described as things that we already have. It's a world that has sort of passed and come again. I think this is going to be a prop light adventure or a campaign. So what do you think are some good module inspirations, guys? I gave this a lot of thought because I think that, again, it plays more towards settings. Right off the bat... The, the up-and-coming, soon-to-be-kickstarted Mutant Crawl Classics. Oh, yeah. This would be so easy to tie into it. Having run the beta for Mutant Crawl Classics, 
you could drop one of these castles onto the world and the players could eventually just discover or be discovered by the nobles, which would play to nomads as a character class. For that matter, they could discover that museum. Oh, yeah. This certainly explains why Jim Wampler kept pushing me to read Jack Vance. So. And I, that, uh, when I was reading this, it just it was MCC over and over again. I, it, it was harder for me to, I guess, throw this into DCC after reading through the test copies of MCC. I think this is just a perfect skin, reskin of it. And there's a couple other things out there that would work. Oh, yeah. Um, Drongo, Ruins of the Witch Kingdoms. The overall feel of that setting is a world that is sort of past. You know, there was once a great civilization, and now there isn't. And there's a lot of things you could take from the last castle and use in a Drongo campaign, I think, and kind of keep that weird Witch Kingdom feel, give it more of a fantasy bent. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'm kind of with Bob. Uh, one of the things that I thought of one of our third-party publishers, I think, is it Leviathan Publishing that does Drongo? It's Mark yeah. Hunt did it with, yeah, Leviathan Publishing. Yeah. I, I have a copy in my MCC hand. MCC and Drongo were the two products that came to mind for me. As far as modules, DCC modules, I can't really pin one on this, so I'm going to stick with Drongo and uh, the MCC. Um, like Bob was saying, with MCC, it would be very easy for you to use this as a campaign setting. Even if you wanted to make the mechs one of the races in the game, you could basically go several years ahead. Maybe one of the, some of the mechs have actually survived somehow, because I believe in the last castle, there was an offshoot of the mech that had survived without the syrup sacks, right? I don't remember what they're called. Yes. Um, well, it was the one that he captured. The bigger one that he captured didn't have a syrup sack. Right. And there were a couple of those mentioned in the book, so it would be very easy for you to... Uh, stat up a couple of the mechs for MCC, and you could just take it from there. I uh, don't know a lot about Drongo. Bob, have you read through? I've read through it, and it's not just a pick this up and drop it into Drongo, but you could easily make this sort of its own yeah. its own nation in Drongo, or you could pull some of the themes from it. Drongo also has a lot of technology. It's got some weird alien things, so it already kind of has that matching feel. And the other thing that I'm thinking of, and the Kickstarter ends like two uh, days after after the show airs, oh, yeah. is hubris. I mean, even in the basic description of hubris, there's the opulent nobility, grand inequality, destitute commoners. This book almost reads like a setup for hubris. You know, let the last castle fall, wait 200 years, and the alien races spread and intermingle. Hubris. So... Well, I was looking at some of these specific tie-ins, like the birds right off the bat. Uh, mm-hmm. Silent Nightfall by Daniel Ooh, Bishop. Yeah. The Gralistrix in there. Oh, <laughs> those freaking owl people. Those were creepy. Um, and then to stick with Goodman Games, you've got Against the Atomic Overlord, which Edgar Johnson just put out earlier this year. Yeah. They have a race called the Ura, who had been formerly enslaved by the society of that time. And the mechs really made me think of them. And that's also one that's set in a very post-apocalyptic world with lot of nice hex crawl options in there. For other specifics, we could even liken the race of creatures that you find in the seventh pit of Cezarkon. Those could be likened to the mechs. They were kept by owners. They're just stuck there enslaved. The seventh pit of Cezarkon has such a hellish feel to it that taking the dwarves and converting them to cockroach people would make it even more oh, yeah. disturbing, I think, than and it already the, is. The other one, thinking about the races and the similarities there, you've got the insect women, the brand new release, they served Brandolin Red. Ooh. You've got Ant-Men. By the great Stephen Newton, right? Ooh. Yes. And that is, having gotten to 
playtest that, it is a really great adventure. It's really creepy, and you could easily drop a version of the Fanes in to the adventure. I mean, that'd easily oh, yeah. something that could be added. You could add them in either phase of their life, too, in in the different locales. And yeah, yeah that definite similarities in that one. I like that. All good suggestions. And that's definitely a creepy adventure, and nothing says creepy like insect uh, people. Kovacs <laughs> knocked it out of the park on that cover. It's super creepy. I love it. Yeah, it's... It, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and actually, if you look at the cover, if you look at the illustration of the, the ant-like people on the cover of Brandlin Red, and you look at the illustrations of the mechs that Very are similar. in the Jack Vance book, they could easily be cousins. Yeah. Yeah, and that was uh, Jack Gowan, I think, is how you pronounce his last name. Because those illustrations, I mean, they describe the mechs as like part, what they put it, like part sun man, part roach, but the illustrations, they definitely look a lot more ant-like. Yeah. And it's going to sound kind of like an odd segue to it, but with the tower being almost a living thing, with everything inside it making up its whole, the tower out of time really stood out for me. On the surface, it's almost the opposite of this plot. You know, there's a sorcerer who wants to explore other worlds, a tower appears out of nowhere, and it's powered by life force. It's almost a direct opposite to the plot, but it has these similarities that, you know, the villagers notice a strange star, you know, a comet, and, and then they just kind of shrug it off until this red light starts pointing from the sky to the lake, and, oh, oh, well, maybe we should do something about this. <laughs> you know, the, the tower itself is alive, and, and that's how Castle Janiel is described, as just kind of being one entity. And, you know, sitting in the middle of its little lake, which is the moat that had already been filled in by the mechs. When you look inside the tower, you've got the peasants, or the prehistoric ape men. Yeah. Meh. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good comparison. Granted, the, the prehistoric ape men are a little more violent in the adventure than the peasants are. Well, that's because they have the cerebral leeches. Yeah, and that's why they handed me my butt. Yeah. I remember this adventure well. They could be akin to the peasants or to the, the mechs. Yeah, I was going to say the mechs. They kind of remind me of the mechs. They resent being locked up. They've got those sacks on the back of their head, so they all kind of communicate on the same level. That's actually a really good comparison. Just thinking about what you kind of laid out here, you could really make a, an argument that the Tower Out of Time, that that particular tower certainly fits into the world of the Last Castle. With all of the things that go on in the book, without giving anything away from the module, there's certainly some comparisons there that could be made. And then with these races that are being used as servant races, it does really sort of start to fit together in a very Vancean way. And I think that reflects the Goodman Games dedication yeah. to yes, Appendix job, and Appendix Curtis. and Appendix N. Um, <laughs> this is a great Michael Curtis adventure. I think the primary difference is that in this case, if you starve out the tower, it can't get home. Ooh, good idea. But the main villain that you meet just goes on and on and on and if the players have the patience he will just drone about his mission and it's the the huge villain speech and honestly Hagedorn you know the the first gentleman of the castle for life he just went on and on and on about 
well, maybe we should be peaceful. Maybe we should figure out what we're going to do. <laughs> well, maybe we should come up with a plan. All of the nobility are like that, too, and that, again, really sort of fits. And then you've got the one guy in the last castle, the one noble who kind of goes crazy and starts <laughs> shooting at everybody and, and helping the castle fall, certainly turning villain, and that would very well fit with the Tower Out of Time. So that's what I've got. <laughs> Well, there's so many kind of comparisons there that you can make with this venture between the weird way things are powered, whether it's using solar cells to make syrup or whether it's you know, the life force of primitive ape men to power things. Tower is a strong bit of imagery. I think that The Last Castle really could very well be yeah. entitled The Last Tower. It's just not as evocative, but it would certainly be... Well, it's especially considering the cover of The Last Castle, it's shown on just this spiral of earth that well it's that gorgeous gorgeous painting but you could easily just sort of extend the tower out of time up you you could have eight or ten sessions you could set a campaign inside the last castle just based on its size i mean you know 30 some floors going up into the sky you could easily start using just the base tower out of time and rather than having the end encounter just continue going up and exploring and encountering strange things you were you were talking about how in a mcc setting it'd be kind of cool to find the the castle as museum yeah it ends in the book oh the tower out of time is a great one because it can be placed pretty much any yeah. any when you know <laughs> right and then you could use that as an entry to the castle as museum in a more fantasy setting or in any setting you really want to do i mean it is out of time but that's a good way to link it in to fantasy and maybe then turn that into a bit of an adventure there's still not a whole lot of detail about the castle itself things are described but the castle itself is left kind of nebulous it's 30 stories but we don't know a whole lot about it but it at least gives you enough of a framework that you could really take this Michael Curtis adventure and just run with it. Uh, you you could essentially you could pull a chain coffin on it <laughs> oh, and yeah. take it from a single adventure to an entire you know setting. Well, I, I was fortunate enough an to get to play with Scott Mathis, I believe, a couple Gen Cons ago. He ran this set in a Transylvanian Adventures. Oh, cool game and it was just a little bit of a skinning but that was my first experience you know outside of dougcon of (laughs) things kind of going left and being dropped into different settings and to me that's like i don't know when i see someone who has reskinned a classic module for dcc and, and thrown a new twist on it i think that is just so awesome they're very versatile i think in that way but if you didn't have that idea to think of it you're like, oh man, now if I do that, I'm copying so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, it, and that sort of transformation can be so complete that you'd never know it. I mean, you, you take the tower out of time and you just invert it. Instead of this big tower, it's this pit that's appeared in the ground. And rather than going up, you're going down. And you could have, never you could have people it. that have played the tower out of time who are now in the pit out of yeah, time. And I they would never really cool. know. Yeah. The adventures themselves have enough replayability because there's so many things that you can miss as you're going through depending on your play style. If you're a very linear player, the first time I played Sailors on the Starless Sea, we pretty much avoided the entire courtyard and we're like, oh, well, there's stairs here and we went straight (laughs) down and we missed like half the adventure. (laughs) Now, granted, the Tower Out of Time is a little bit more linear in in its setup, but it's easy enough to 
miss things so that the second time you're playing, you still get a lot out of it. And if it's yeah. reskinned, you're not even going to notice. Because that's what really sticks out. It's, you know, oh, well, you know, there were cavemen in this module. Oh, really? We, we fought roachmen. You played the same adventure, yeah. but you'd never know. Sort of like <laughs> Catastrophe Island 2. We played a game, it, but yeah, what it we wasn't played... exactly DCC. <laughs> no, not at I rolled all a D60 for damage. That's definitely... I remember a talking cat. That's on the dice chain, right? I remember. <laughs> Joe Bittman. <laughs> <laughs> like, this one has the extinct... Or things that you would think of as players as extinct. You know, trilobites. Really? But those could just as easily be replaced with fanes or, or something as yeah. alien. Well, yeah, now just picture going up, as opposed to just walking up a ramp, picture riding one of the power wagons up a, an even bigger ramp, just scale the size you know, of the, everything. Those things just creep me out so much anyway. Uh, but yet, yeah, I'm just, I keep looking at the cover of this novel, and I kind of want to make that the Tower Out of Time even with parts of it having that bluish steel, but the other parts having almost... It, it's an almost fleshy exterior. Kind of reptilian. Yeah. Maybe we can get Michael Curtis to just start bugging Joseph Goodman. I mean, after all, you know, Harley just got this big thing for sailors. Maybe it's Michael's turn. We could do, do a Vancean cover for Tower at a Time. Oh. You know, get, get some alternate covers. Yeah. Give the, give the Tower at a Time some love. It's a great adventure. Oh, c- come on, Bob. You, you mentioned a pit out of time. You, you could actually place the Tower out of Time in the seventh pit of Cezarkon. You're crossing <laughs> the streams now. Okay, now my brain's broken. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I think we we need to be careful lest we restart the the Harley Stroh Michael Curtis feud. <laughs> they they buried the hatchet not we're, not in each other's skulls. We call it a win, right? So we should we should leave that be. But yeah, I mean the Tower Out of Time, you're right, is very versatile and that you can put it anywhere and you could put it any when. With a little bit of work, you could put it in Black Powder Black Magic and put it into a western theme and go a weird Ooh, west route with it. Kind of give it that dark tower theme. Oh yeah, you can certainly go kind of the, the gunslinger you know, feel to it. It yeah. w- wouldn't be out of place in Mutant Crawl Classics. Yeah. It wouldn't be out of place anywhere. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's it's as popular as it is and is played as often as it is. I see Tower Out of Time come across the feed on Google Plus a lot. A lot of people and run that's it. that's a really good thing to see. But yeah, I think that overall the Tower Out of Time really is a nice match with The Last Castle. And The Last Castle is certainly, it's its a good read. It's only a novella. It's not a huge book, but... It, it could take you a while to get through, even though it's less than 80 pages. <laughs> yeah, but, I, you know, I'm a Lovecraft fan, so so verbosity and strange yeah. words yeah, yeah. don't frighten me too much, <laughs> um, even if I have to make a sand check. But overall, I think it's, it's a good pairing, and perhaps folks that are thinking about running the tower out of time or running it again might really be well served to sit down and pick Definitely. up a copy of oh, the last castle and get I it suddenly read. want to put the Grellistrix and the ant men and and the mechs together inside the tower out of time I hate you <laughs> You know I'm not going to sleep tonight now right <laughs> Oh yeah it, it'll be fun you'll never know when it's coming <laughs> Yay! Cockroaches, butterfly people, and <laughs> owl men. So you um you kicked to uh, our uh, good friend Mike Evans' Kickstarter. You want to hit on that one more time before we close out tonight? Yeah, the Hubris Kickstarter ends, like I said, I think it ends a day or two after this show is airing. 
It's yeah, you know, we've backed it. It looks really good. There's a lot of of cool material in it, and it just sort of lends itself. Well, heck, it really lends itself to the tire out of time. There's even an avian race of birdmen that with a little bit of work could be just as obnoxious as the birds in this book. Yeah, it's yeah. always nice to see new settings coming out, new things for people to draw on. And again, it's the beauty of the DCC community overall that there's so much creativity and there's so much stuff pouring out. It's like the golden age of Dungeons and Dragons when there was the Rolaid yeah. products from from Mayfair and everybody was putting out stuff. But here, you can put out things that actually have that DCC compatible stamp, and that's really nice. You know that someone's at least looked at it and said, "Yep, that's DCC. Oh, you, yeah, can, you can use our." Logo. I've been following really nice. uh, Mike Evans' posts. Seems like he's been working on this thing for, what, a year or two? At least, yeah. yeah. And it, it's quality stuff, folks, so send him some love. It's, uh, it's definitely worth <laughs> Forget the love. Forget the love. Send him cash. <laughs> he's, got, he's got stretch goals that have all sorts of people co- contributing, you know, new monsters like Wayne Snyder, Adam Eskevich, a whole bunch of people are, are on deck to add stuff to this and, and really kind of kick it up to that next level. So... <laughs> I think it's it's a really good thing. <laughs> and this is time for our caveat that the Sanctum Sacorum podcast has not been reimbursed. No, for we're of giving the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for yeah, apparently so. But but you know, I really I, I'm kind of excited about it. Just like when Drongo came out, it's really neat to be able to pick these things up, take a look at them, and and get a whole new look at DCC RPG in general. Just like Mutant Crawl Classics is a whole new way to view the view the game and the system. Well, and it's really more of a compatible system. But all these things and all of these ideas, they're not necessarily gigantic books. You don't need 300 books to have a full setting. I mean, Drongo is like 63, 64 pages with art, and it's very complete. It's oh, all you need. And, and as this stuff comes out, I think that more and more people are realizing that you don't have to spend 10 years of your life to create a setting that people are going to use. Just create something good. And and Hubris oh, looks yeah. like it's going to be good. So I guess, you know, we hope you've heard something on the show that inspires you. And if you want to chime in or you've got a suggestion for a future topic or if you've statted up your own creatures from the Shadow People or The Last Castle... You can email us at thehub at sanctum.media. If you're going to a convention, if you've got a road crew game, let us know. Our shows come out in about two weeks, so we need some notice so that we can get it out there. But we want to plug the community. We want to give you guys every chance we can to get more people at your table and to spread the gospel of DCC. <laughs> yes, so, converts. We so need I think them. that's it for us. David? Guys, it was a uh, pleasure. And uh, folks, like uh, Bob said, reach out and contact us and let us know what you want to hear. Yeah. Jen? Uh, what they said. But <laughs> they, we, we do hope this has given a little bit of inspiration for your table and maybe also shed some light on how versatile some of these modules can be. And that's it for me. Join us next time when we stick David Beatty in the center chair. And <laughs> until then... I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you found something that leaves you inspired. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, guys. Stay safe, guys. You have been listening to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast.
join us next week for a Halloween episode when we pair a cask of Amontillado with a bottle of Brandolin Red. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2015.